Welcome to Backlog Books. My name is Kara. This is the podcast where I talk about what I have been reading lately. Thank you for joining me, and please be prepared for spoilers. I am taking a small break from fantasy and sci-fi to talk about another classic. This time, I am talking about Three Men in a Boat to Say Nothing of the Dog by Jerome K. Jerome. Three Men in a Boat was published in 1889. My copy has 185 pages, and I read it in February of 2021. Our author, Jerome K. Jerome, was born in 1859. He attempted a variety of jobs before finding success as a writer with the publication of Three Men in a Boat, which has never been out of print, which I think is cool. Apparently, this book was so popular when it came out that it led to an increase in boating as a pastime and contributed to the Thames becoming a tourist attraction. Jerome was also a volunteer ambulance driver in World War I, and he died in 1927. Here is the summary. Martyrs to hypochondria and general seediness, Jay and his friends George and Harris decide that a jaunt up the Thames would suit them to a T. But when they set off, they can hardly predict the troubles that lie ahead with tow ropes, unreliable weather forecasts, and tins of pineapple chunks, not to mention the devastation left in the wake of Jay's small fox terrier, Montmorency. Some books you read at the wrong time. I tried to read this book when I was about 14, and it did not go well. I couldn't appreciate the language and humor, and I thought it was boring. To be fair to 14-year-old me, not a lot really happens in this book, but I kept it on my shelf for almost 15 years. I had a feeling that the right time to read it would come along. And when I picked it up this year, it was perfect. The humor and the writing hit just right, and I loved it. So I'm glad I kept it on my shelf for all those years. I'm going to do something a little different this time and read some portions of the book during the podcast. Like I said, I like the language and the style of the writing, and I'd like to share some of it. Plus, it's a short book, less than 200 pages, and it's in the public domain. Technically, I could read the whole thing to you on this podcast, and it wouldn't be a problem. Three Men in a Boat started life as an informational pamphlet, a walkthrough of what you can see on a boat tour from London to Oxford in 1889, what cities there are to stop at, their histories and legends, what's fun to see where the good pubs are. While I was researching this book, I found that it was inspired by a similar trip Jerome took for his honeymoon. But it's not just a simple list of what's where and what's to do. There are a lot of dreaming musings where Jerome thinks about art and history and contemplates beautiful skylines and imagines fairy tales. And all of this is laid side by side with slapstick humor where three friends hassle each other for two weeks on a boat trip. Our book begins with the three friends, Harris, George, and Jay, who is our author and narrator. 
They're sitting around discussing how ill they are, how many sicknesses and diseases they must have. Jay has read the encyclopedia of possible illnesses and concluded that he has every illness in the book. As he says on page 7, It is a most extraordinary thing, but I never read a patent medicine advertisement without being impelled to the conclusion that I am suffering from the particular disease therein dealt with in its most virulent form. The diagnosis seems in every case to correspond exactly with all the sensations that I have ever felt. Well, except for Handmaid's Knee. Can't have everything. The three friends decide the only thing that can cure their melancholy is to take a boat trip up the Thames from London to Oxford. It's a chance to get out and enjoy nature. They begin to plan their trip, and it seems like planning will take the rest of the book. Because they argue about everything. What food and clothes and gear to bring, what kind of boat to rent, whether they should camp out or stay in taverns along the way. The question of whether to camp out or stay in hotels is a difficult one. On page 17, he says, George and I were for camping out. We said it would be so wild and free, so patriarchal-like. Slowly the golden memory of the dead sun fades from the hearts of the cold, sad clouds. Silent like sorrowing children, the birds have ceased their song, and only the moorhen's plaintive cry and the harsh croak of the corncrake stirs the awed hush around the couch of waters where the dying day breathes out her last. Harris said, how about when it rained? You can never rouse Harris. There is no poetry about Harris, no wild yearning for the unattainable. Harris never weeps he knows not why. If Harris's eyes filled with tears, you can bet it is because Harris has been eating raw onions or put too much Worcester over his chop. In the present instance, however, his practical view of the matter came as a very timely hint. Camping out in rainy weather is not pleasant. The rain is pouring steadily down all the time. It is difficult enough to fix a tent in dry weather. In wet, the task becomes Herculean. Instead of helping you, it seems to you that the other man is simply playing the fool. Just as you get your side beautifully fixed, he gives it a hoist from his end and spoils it all. Listen, I love camping, but I've put up tents in the rain. You always misplace something or forget a steak or neglect the rain fly until everything is soaked. So the friends decide to camp when the weather is good and sleep in hotels when the weather is bad. There. That only took them, like, 20 pages. They spend all night packing and repacking, taking turns trying to fit everything they absolutely cannot live without into bags, and ruthlessly mocking each other for their terrible packing skills. In the morning, they plan to leave early, but sleep in late. Two of them wake up and see their third friend still sound asleep. On page 41, looking at his sleeping friend, Jay says, I don't know why it should be, I am sure, but the sight of another man asleep in bed when I am up maddens me. It seems to me so shocking to see the precious hours of a man's life, the priceless moments that will never come back to him again, being wasted in mere brutish sleep. 
So they wake him up by yelling and scaring him into falling out of bed. Ah, friends. <laughs> the trip itself begins well enough. They have taken boat trips together before. They know the way, all the best stops, and what to avoid. They do bicker about whose turn it is to tow the boat and whose turn to steer. And they alternate between getting in the way of steamboats on purpose and then asking steamboats to tow them. Along the way, they stop in a small town called Datchet, which, have some trivia about your podcast host, I used to live in Datchet. It's a small town close to Windsor and not very well known. It was very fun for me to see Datchet described. I'm not sure I have ever seen it in a book before. Jerome has a habit of interrupting his narration to tell a story only tangentially related to what's going on. He'll have cheese on a sandwich and think about a previous experience transporting smelly cheese on a train, taking up several pages. The story he tells here is about their last visit to Datchet, when they thought to find a better hotel than the one on the village green, only to spend hours toting their luggage around town and end up spending the night in a stranger's house sleeping on the floor. Jerome mentions two hotels in Datchet, and both are still there now. I've been in them. I know it is so American to be impressed by old places, but what can I say? There's a sense of connection with the past that's more prevalent in England. There's something about being in a building that has served the same purpose for almost 300 years. I recently visited some American historic sites, and they were along the lines of, check out this totally abandoned cowboy dugout from 100 years ago. The cowboy dugouts were interesting but not alive in the same way. I'm not alone in thinking old places and things are cool. Jerome actually has several paragraphs musing on ancient treasures. On page 53, he says, Why, all our art treasures of today are only the dug-up commonplaces of three or four hundred years ago. I wonder if there is any real intrinsic beauty in the old soup plates and beer mugs that we prize so now, or if it is only the halo of age glowing around them that gives them their charms in our eyes. Will it be the same in the future? Will the prized treasures of today always be the cheap trifles of the day before? Their journey continues, constantly interrupted by stories and musings, the tale of the smelly cheese, the day spent lost in the Hampton Court maze, even stories that their fathers used to tell them. There's also contemplation on the storied history of each place they pass, like where the Magna Carta was signed, and the narrator has a tendency to descend into daydreaming. He imagines at one point, on page 118, we had the river to ourselves, except that Far in the distance we could see a fishing punt moored in midstream, on which three fishermen sat, and we skimmed over the water, and no one spoke. The red sunset threw a mystic light upon the waters, and tinged with fire the towering woods and made a golden glory of the piled-up clouds. The little sail stood out against the purple sky, the gloaming lay around us, wrapping the world in rainbow shadows, and behind us crept the night. 
we seemed like knights of some old legend, sailing across some mystic lake into the unknown realm of twilight, unto the great land of the sunset. It does not do to daydream while steering a boat on the Thames, however. Immediately, his fanciful musing is interrupted. We did not go into the realm of twilight. We went slap into that punt where those three old men were fishing. We did not know what had happened at first, because the sail shut out the view, but from the nature of the language that rose up upon the evening air, we gathered that we had come into the neighborhood of human beings, and that they were vexed and discontented. It's around this point that George and Harris tell Jay that he is not allowed to steer the boat anymore. They know from this and past experiences that he will daydream and crash them into things. They make it to Oxford, miraculously, and soon enough it is time for the return journey back down the river. They've had a series of mishaps and adventures, and it seems the weather may be taking a turn for the worse. It might rain the whole way back to London. The three friends collectively vow to complete their journey in the manner intended. After all, they came here for two weeks on the river, and they mean to finish it. A short while later, one of them muses that they could catch a train in the next town and be home in time to get dinner at a favorite restaurant and see a late-night show. They contemplate their two possible futures and pick the one with less time spent in the rain. Back in London, warm and indoors, fully fed, they toast to the great success of their boating trip. My final word on three men in a boat. I'm really glad I picked this one up again and gave it another try. It was short and a lot of fun. It was also very relatable. A lot of it was like reading about a trip that I've taken with friends. I guess people don't change all that much. Not even in 130 years. Also, here at the end, I would like to give a shout out to my mother. I am so sorry that I stole your book 15 years ago. Um, if you want it back, I finally read it. For more media like this, maybe try Persuasion by Jane Austen. Or The Importance of Being Earnest, either the play by Oscar Wilde or the movie with Colin Firth. And we have reached the end. Join me next time to hear about The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien. You can find the pod on Facebook at Backlog Books Podcast. Comments, questions, thoughts, you can email me at backlogbookspod at gmail.com. The music is by Joseph McDade. You can hear more of his work at josephmcdade.com. Thank you for going on this trip with me. I hope to talk with you again soon. 